This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, philosopher Kate Kirkpatrick joined me to talk about her new biography, Becoming Beauvoir, A Life. It examines the great French writer, feminist and philosopher Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir's life and work has often been distorted and overshadowed by her working and romantic relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. Kate debunks some major misconceptions about Beauvoir's life and shares just how influential and original Beauvoir's intellectual contribution to philosophy was and is. Then, finally, Dr David Brophy, a historian and lecturer in modern Chinese history from Sydney University, joined me to talk about Australia's deteriorating relationship with China and why we must be careful to avoid paranoia and panic about so-called Chinese influence. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and joining me now is Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and uh, he joins me from his home, as pretty much everyone is doing at the moment. Hi, Ben. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, doing my best. <laughs> um, you know, I think things seem to be improving for Victorians. And so, you know, with the infection rates coming down, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, I hope. It does feel like there is hope and that there is a kind of end, end in sight where we might finally get to see other people. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very exciting. Now, Ben, in terms of um, coronavirus figures in, and also politics in Victoria and, of course, federally, um, we are seeing ongoing battles happening. And I mentioned at the top of the show that today we've seen no new deaths recorded in Victoria, um, but we still have seen around 42 infections, um, people who have become infected with coronavirus here in Victoria. So, the numbers are stabilising um, in infections and, of course, today is one of the first days in recent times where we've had no deaths. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that's the same trend will continue tomorrow. Uh, but in terms of how things are tracking in Victoria, we have seen an improvement, as we've just said, and yet we're still seeing a lot of dissent and complaint, um, which is probably, to put it mildly, really, more like abuse, um, online, in person, and also protests, including a protest on Sunday at the Queen Victoria Market. And it seems like every day is a stacks-on um, day against Premier Daniel Andrews. So it's interesting to see that, you know, things haven't really let up yet um, in terms of the way that um, the Premier is being received. What are your thoughts on, on that kind of interesting tension or contrast between how things are actually tracking in terms of the numbers and um, the types, the type of dissent he's getting in the community? Yeah, well, I think there's two things going on here. I mean, the first thing is that there's an understandable weariness of the lockdown in the Victorian population, particularly in Melbourne, and particularly amongst business owners who remain closed. Um, you know, they're, they're doing it tough. Uh, many have their businesses closed for more than six months now. Many are struggling with debt. 
um, with high overheads and they're not able to trade. So you can understand why those people are grumpy. Um, but there's another thing going on here that's kind of bigger and stranger than that, which is a kind of widespread conspiracy theory kind of backlash against really the entire uh, scientific underpinning of the coronavirus response in this country. And that backlash is being stoked, I think, by the party politics, where we've seen the Prime Minister over the last week or so take a very strident line of criticism against Labor premiers, essentially, not just Dan Andrews, but also Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. So you've seen an overt politicisation of the coronavirus response from the Prime Minister, and that's then flowing down in to some pretty distressing behaviour amongst the general population. So um, overnight we saw death threats against the Queensland Chief Health Officer, Jeanette Young, and she's now under 24-hour police protection um, because of her stance in terms of closing Queensland's borders, and that's been strongly criticised by Morrison um, in terms of uh, preventing a young woman from going to her father's funeral you know, it's, it, for those of us who have any kind of memory of politics in this country, the, the spectre of conservative politicians like Scott Morrison, a former immigration minister, criticising politicians for their hard border policies, mm. I mean, you know, irony is kind of dead, really. Yeah, it, it's definitely dead. Um, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that case that the Prime Minister dredged up and put front and centre of the debate um, because that young woman who didn't get to attend her father's funeral also was very critical of the Prime Minister for dragging her into a political argument. And um, it has been pointed out that she was granted permission to visit her father um, a couple of times before he died. So it's not always as um, straightforward as some people who kind of weaponise situations for political gain um, might make it out to be. Yeah, absolutely. That's entirely correct. And I, I think, you know, it's a tremendously irresponsible from the Prime Minister to do this because he supposedly sits on National Cabinet with uh, both Palaszczuk and Andrews, and they're supposedly coming up with a coordinated national policy to fight this pandemic, which, of course, does not recognise borders. Uh, you know, it's a very, very strange uh, position. But then again, if you know the history of Morrison and the way he plays politics, it's not surprising at all. It's utterly unsurprising because this is the way he operates. He seeks out partisan advantage and where he sees an opportunity, he takes it. And I think this is exactly what this that he's doing here. It's all about diverting attention from his own troubles. Uh, the government obviously faces a crippling economic recession, uh, one which it, it doesn't really have a handle on. Um, and there are also some legitimate questions being asked about the national borders because there are tens of thousands of Australians trapped overseas who are not able to return, and that's largely because of federal government policies. Yeah, there was obviously people recall um, in Victoria the hotel quarantine issues, and, of course, that's why there's a judicial inquiry running at the moment, and Premier Andrews will be appearing uh, next week, I believe, um, at that inquiry. But that did mean that there was kind of a cap or a restriction put in place in terms of the number of people that um, Australia would let back in because um, at the time people thought we needed to slow things down to get things under control. And so New South Wales took a large proportion of returned travellers. Where are we at now then in terms of that situation? Because the, the kind of 
Victoria stopping taking these um, return travellers was quite a while ago and that kind of reason or rationale um, probably really is no longer valid. Yeah, that's right. Um, what's happened is that the federal government has basically not planned, which has been a uh, something we've seen also in aged care. So they haven't planned for uh, somewhere else to take uh, people who want to travel to Australia from overseas. You know, um, Adelaide could do it potentially. Uh, Western Australia or the Northern Territory or Queensland could do it. Um, Queensland, I understand, has already got a fair bit of capacity taken up um, on the Gold Coast with people who want to stay in hotels. But, you know, there's clearly the opportunity to do this. Earlier on in the pandemic, the government put aside some um, uh, detention centre space, ironically enough, mm. um, to to take um, citizens returning from overseas. Um, you might remember there was, uh, there was space um, given over to citizens returning from Wuhan. Um, yes. So, you know, there's been a lack of a coordinated national response here. I think that's clear. And then at the same time, the government is also issuing these kind of puzzling exemptions. So it was apparently fine to let Tom Hanks fly into the country to film Baz Luhrmann's movie about Elvis. You know, at the very time that ordinary Australians are trapped in the UK, in Spain, in France, unable to return to Australia. Labor's asking questions like, why can't the government use which has got all these spare planes that aren't being flown at the moment. You know, why can't the mm-hmm. government organise some of that to bring some of these citizens back to Australia? Uh, but, you know, so far all we've got from Peter Dutton is basically more of the blame game. He's decided to blame Anastasia Palaszczuk again. Yes. Well, it seems like Peter Dutton's letting a whole range of people travel and get special dispensation, including Tony Abbott as well. So anyone uh, with a high profile seems to get a bit of a free pass. Um, Ben, in terms of the the capacity for other states to take on returned travellers, I mean, the Northern Territory has said that they're already set up to take 3,000 international arrivals and Western Australia is um, open to potentially helping Australians return. But I was surprised to hear that there are around, of course it's approximated, but 25,000 Australians who are currently stranded overseas because of these flight caps. Um, So that's, you know, quite a large proportion of people who are stuck over in other countries um, wanting to return. Yeah, and Morrison just doesn't seem to care, really. I mean, it's weird because there's obviously a way to do this safely. You know, you bring them back, you quarantine them for a fortnight, you make sure that they don't go out to the 7-Eleven or um, escape, as has happened in some of the quarantine hotels, um, and then you safely release these citizens back into the community where they can take up their rightful place in our society. Uh, That seems to be beyond the wit of the federal government at the moment, and I think it's shows that, once again, they're struggling with some of the exigencies of the, of the coronavirus challenge. Yeah, it is, it's disturbing to see them fail at basic things because it does um, put one on edge as we move towards summer. Of course, we are now in spring and um, anyone with a, a decent memory will know that um, our bushfire season started early in New South Wales as well as Victoria. So, I mean, it does bring bring back memories of poor management um, from a federal level um, in terms of another potential disaster that's looming, and I don't want to be all doomsday about it, but it is something that is um, not out of the realm of possibility. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to prepare for the fire season. Um, uh, we, we only have to look at what's happening in California and Oregon at the moment in the United States to see um, how bad things can possibly get. I mean, this is the future now. Um, this is the, the reality that we're going to have to live with in our hotter, warmer, drier world. Um, it worries me very significantly that there doesn't seem to have been a coordinated response to last year's tragedy, uh, that the New South Wales government still hasn't responded properly to its own commission of inquiry into the fires, um, and that the national government remains you know, uh, unable to focus um, on more than one thing at once, really, or, or really more than, you know, party politics. Um, as, as far as I understand it, for example, we still haven't bought in any more firefighting aircraft, um, despite the obvious shortfall of them last uh, summer. So just some of these kind of obvious things, you know, where this is a government that's committed itself to security, um, it's having a, a massive arms build up at the moment of the ADF, uh, but in immediate kind of human security needs, protecting us from bushfires, you know, they seem to be asleep at the wheel. Yeah, well, I hope we're not having the same conversations that we had earlier this year again, because um, that would be a, a real tragedy. Um, now, Ben, in terms of some of the other tragedies, of course, um, it was, you know, a total shock to so many people to hear about the fact that um, Rio Tinto had decided to blow up a 46,000-year-old um, rock shelter at Yukon Gorge in Western Australia. And we did see a development on Friday afternoon. Um, there was a statement to the ASX saying that um, Rio Tinto had confirmed that their CEO, uh, Jean-Sebastien Jacques, and two other senior executives were leaving um, after its board bowed to pressure, um, investor pressure in particular, over that decision, which, of course, um, really is unconscionable. What are your thoughts on that, particularly given that um, in in mining and resources and in in the kind of link to the federal government and federal politics sphere, it seems that they've almost been untouchable and, you know, um, supported, really irrefutably supported by the federal government in terms of, um, you know, economic support and political support. So it's interesting to finally see that there was at least some type of consequence involved for when a, a mining company has done something that the general community um, has not accepted as, as being acceptable behaviour. Yeah, I'm a little bit conflicted about this. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's hard to cry too many tears for Jean-Sebastien Jacques and his multi-million dollar executive. <laughs> executives um, who will be walking out the door apparently with a $40 million severance package. Nice, nice work if you can get it. Um, so it's, it's pretty hard to feel sorry for these guys. Um, you know, we found out, of course, that Rio Tinto knew that the, the site was sacred. It knew that it had very high archaeological value and they just went ahead and blew it up anyway. Um, but I think, you know, I think we should be careful drawing too many conclusions from this because, you know, um, let's remember that it was completely legal for Rio Tinto to do this. They had the permission to do this from both the federal and the West Australian governments. So that's a massive failure of regulation in this country. And no one's doing anything to, to fix that up, you know. Well, they're, they're actually making it worse. Indeed, indeed. The federal government is actually watering down our environmental regulations, as we talked about last week. Yeah. Um, and just this morning, Morrison's announced a new $10 billion gas 
plan, right, where he's going to try and hitch Australia's economic recovery to the gas industry. Um, so I, I don't see any weakening of the broader hold that fossil fuels have over Australia's government, um, and not just the, the coalition government either, but, you know, both major parties. Um, you know, while there are some personal consequences in this particular case, you know, we're still not seeing anyone fired because of the pollution that they're emitting into the atmosphere. We're not seeing really as much movement as we need to see on any of the kind of climate actions that, that are required for these countries to survive the next century. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit sceptical that this is the kind of uh, a brand new world of, of corporate accountability. Yeah. Um, it was interesting that I saw on... Uh, Instagram of all places, that there has been a class action launched on behalf of young people in Australia, which is seeking an injunction to stop the Australian government from approving an extension to Whitehaven's Vickery coal mine, arguing that it would harm young people by exacerbating climate change. And this is really being led um, by a number of young people um, who are really or have been brought together by that um, great movement, School Strike for Climate, which, of course, before all of this coronavirus um, was happening, we saw mass protests in Australia um, with young people and, of course, supported by adults. Um, so we did have such a kind of and a kind of groundswelling of activism here in Australia before all of this happened. And I found it, you know, interesting um, to see that at least some kind of move has been taken in court. And it will particularly be interesting to see what the kind of outcome will be of that um, that application and um, to, to, yeah, seek an injun injunction. Yep, I think it's a really interesting case and it's part of a growing international movement to exert some legal accountability on the fossil fuel sector um, and indirectly on the, on the governments that licence and permit it. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> this is one of those very technical kind of cases where it will stand or fall on the on the black letter of the law. So, um, you know, I can talk about the politics of it, which I think are fascinating, you know, and I hope that there are more of these cases. Uh, you know, we've seen with the tobacco industry that uh, over a period of time, litigation actually eventually crippled that industry and really wound back its social license to advertise and other sort of operations that it undertook. And I hope that the same thing happens for fossil fuels. Mm. Now, Ben, on another important issue that's been bubbling along for, mm, must have been a couple of months at least now, is something that we've talked about and that, of course, we um, have a, an interest in, which is the higher education funding bill, which um, the education minister and the coalition government in the at the federal level are seeking to have passed. And we know that the crossbenchers in the Senate are really, really important in terms of whether this bill does pass. And so we've seen a lot of academics and people who work in the tertiary education sector um, writing letters and lobbying um, their local members, but also particularly the crossbench around this um, these funding changes because they will you know, do substantial harm and create a lot of distortion in this um, sector and also, I guess, um, lead to further loss of jobs. So, Ben, in terms of where we're at with that bill, we have seen um, some kind of different 
signalling um, communication from the Centre Alliance crossbenchers that they are open to passing this bill um, in the Senate, uh, including Sterling Griff. Um, and so I'm interested in that and whether, you know, why the crossbenchers would even consider, I guess, passing this bill, which seems like it shouldn't have that many friends. Yeah, it's bad news for Australia's universities. Uh, it looks like the Centre Alliance is getting ready to roll over. Um, it's the normal reason for crossbenchers to vote with the government. They've been offered a big bribe for their constituencies. Um, so I think, um, you know, Dan T and the Education Minister has provided enough sweeteners for specific uh, concerns that the crossbench senators have around regional universities that they may now be prepared to vote for it. All eyes now turn to Jackie Lambie. Uh, she'll be the pivotal vote here. Um, once again, she represents a, a largely a regional electorate in northern Tasmania. Not she represents the whole of Tasmania, but she's based herself in northern Tasmania. So um, it will be, very much be about whether these senators can see through to the broader national interests, which is absolutely not to pass this bill. It's a bad bill. Um, and it will be bad for universities and particularly bad for future students. We'll have to pay lots and lots of higher fees. Um, it does go to committee, so we've got a whole bunch of vice-chancellors rocking up to the Senate to talk about that today, and that will be really interesting. Um, it, quite predictably, but rather sadly, a whole bunch of the vice-chancellors have decided to back the government uh, because they seem to ultimately side with the government when it comes to higher fees. They just want the money, I think, um, and they're not too concerned about the students that they supposedly educate. Um, so that's pretty disappointing from my behalf, um, but perhaps not that surprising. So it will be a really interesting higher education committee um, and, and Senate hearing today. Um, but, yeah, I'm not too hopeful that the, the crossbench will, will fight this one. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it is disappointing. We saw in the Latrobe University say that they supported this bill but um, qualified it by asking that a reworking of the fees uh, happen with a view to narrowing the gap between the highest and lowest student contributions and then the group of eight leading universities um, saying that it would support the bill if the government agreed to curb the biggest proposed fee hikes. Um, you know, this all kind it's of amazing, seems isn't it? like... Learned, uh, yeah. learned helplessness, isn't it? You know, they're, they're, they're like a torture victim begging not to be hit too hard. You know, I, I mean, you know, on the one hand, yeah, the universities have had a really rough trot this year and the government has punished them repeatedly, denying them JobKeeper, uh, effectively cutting their funding. Uh, this bill, of course, will be devastating, particularly to some of the smaller and regional and suburban universities. So perhaps they feel like if they can just get out with a couple of amendments make, that make it slightly less bad, um, then that's a good good result in the current environment where there's such open hostility towards the university sector from the Morrison government. Uh, but anyone who's studied politics for a little while, as some of these vice chancellors supposedly have, um, mm -hmm. would tell you that, you know, the way to win here is to fight. Um, yeah. So it's pretty disappointing that they're not really fighting it. Well, I mean, they don't have a vote in the Senate, which I feel is an important reminder because they don't have a, point, a position to bargain from. And at every change in, in policy that we've discussed on this show so many times, um, they have been, you know, the loser on the losing end and so have students and so have academics. So I dare say that there's no point, um, you know, hanging up 
you're you're fighting you know apparatus now it, and also then even when those other changes were happening did we really see a true fight not really um you know if we cast our minds back to say 2014 when um christopher pine wanted to introduce hundred thousand dollar degrees uh, most of the vice chancellors were in favor of that you know massive fee hike um, it was student protests and the opposition of Labor at the time that, um, you know, and widespread civil uh, disquiet at that bill that really uh, torpedoed that in the Senate. Um, and that's what's going to have to happen this time around because, uh, yeah, you can't rely on vice chancellors, unfortunately, to protect the best interests of their universities. They tend to be very narrowly focused on the bottom line of their institutions. Yeah. And just finally, I did want to say and ask about Labor because there has been a lot of criticism of them in terms of their lacking ability to effectively oppose major changes. And um, someone made a rather witty tweet yesterday about John Hewson being a more effective opposition (laughs) than the opposition, (laughs) which is probably fair, to be honest, um, and is also ironic. But uh, I'm wondering, where has Labor gone? Because in terms of, you know, seeing them on the nightly news or having any cut through, if they are talking at all, it seems like they're almost missing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough time to be an opposition party. Uh, You're seeing that at both the state level and the federal level. Uh, We face a historic crisis with the pandemic um, and voters want uh, politicians to actually get together and, and I think work together to try and defeat the, the virus. Um, so um, Labor's trying to sort of gently criticise the Morrison government where it thinks it can get away with it but not appear too strident and sort of, you know, avoid the fate of, say, some of the state oppositions that have slid over into irrelevance, uh, like, say, Michael O'Brien here in Victoria um, who just says so many silly, crazy things that no-one takes him seriously anymore. Um Also, I think that Labor's trying to bide its time. Um, uh, Anthony Albanese knows that the next election is not until 2022. Labor doesn't control the Senate, so it can't block any legislation. Um, You know, Labor's pretty impotent, really, as a result of its devastating defeat last year in the federal election. Um, There's not a lot Labor can do federally uh, in in the parliament. Um, And I think there's been a uh, they're, they're still soul searching, you know. They're still trying to decide what they what they stand for, uh, what will be the the new direction for Labor, what sort of platform they're going to take to the next election. So, while they're working that out, there's still a fair bit of navel gazing going on. I don't think they're doing the best that they could to hold the government to account. But I will just put in one plug for Tanya Plibersek, who has been pretty strong on the university funding. She has actually been uh, pretty vocal in opposition to this government plan. Mm, perhaps the media just aren't giving her that airspace. Well, that, that's always the problem for oppositions. You know, yeah. people often say, you know, where is the opposition? You know, they're often trying to get onto the media. <laughs> they're trying to be heard. Um, but it's tough for oppositions. You know, you can have long periods where you're just out of the limelight and you're irrelevant to the way politics is run. Um, and particularly at the moment with the kind of national cabinet setup, where a lot of the actions between Morrison and the premiers, that's really sidelined Albanese as the kind of alternative prime minister. Yeah, yeah. Um, ben, it's been great to chat with you once again on federal politics and I uh, hope you are still having an okay week in lockdown and that we have some more exciting news uh, next week. 
Yeah, thanks, Amy. I'm going to go for a early night walk tonight. I'm going to go for an 8 p.m. walk. That'll be exciting. Oh, yeah. oh look at you. Pushing yes. it right to the bounds of Pushing the boundaries, yes, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Living on the edge, I love it. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Ben. See you soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to have with me Kate Kirkpatrick, who is a tutorial fellow in philosophy at Regents Park College at the University of Oxford, based over in the UK. And she's the author of a book, Becoming Beauvoir. And uh, it is a really fascinating read, and it's one um, that I've been thoroughly enjoying, really luxuriating in being such a fan of Simone de Beauvoir, who um, is obviously a great French thinker, philosopher and writer. And um, we'll get into how she defines herself very soon. But I do want to welcome Kate now and also to say a big congratulations on this book, which clearly a lot of work and research has gone into. So thank you so much, Kate, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you on the show because, I mean, I have actually been thinking about the ideas that have come up in this book for about a year since it came out and seeing the reception to it within philosophy and a number of other people who've looked at existentialist philosophers like Sky Cleary, who's also an Australian but based over in New York. And it was really great to see people to start to open their minds to the things that you were saying in this book. And we will get to some of that in a moment. But first up, I wanted to ask about your interests and background in a scholarly sense because it's my understanding that you had your introduction or your early um, research in philosophy to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who features very heavily in this book, but is obviously not the main character. And I, I just wanted to get an understanding of where your philosophical passions lie. Well, thank you. That's a great, that's a great question. It is the case that my previous publications in academic writing have focused mainly on Sartre and existentialism more broadly. But in fact, my interest in Beauvoir generated around the same time. So after I finished my undergraduate degree, I worked in publishing for five years, and I knew that I wanted to return to academia. But I wasn't quite sure what I was interested in enough to spend a doctorate on. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, um, my interests are in philosophy and theology. So I'm interested in philosophy and sort of parts of the sub-discipline. Mm. And so I'm interested in philosophy and literature, and I'm interested in philosophy and religion. And I've always loved French literature and culture. And so originally I chose to work on Sartre because his philosophy combined literature and religious thought as well. But at the same time that I was developing my doctoral proposal, I had a friend with whom I used to meet to do a conversation exchange. So one of the things about living in Oxford is that there are lots of people who are eager to learn different languages. So I used to meet once a week with this friend and we'd speak half French and half English. And for my birthday, she gave me a copy of Simone de Beauvoir's prize-winning novel, The Mandarins. So alongside working on this, the, the philosophical project on Sarge, I started reading into Beauvoir and reading The Second Sex. 
So over the course of the years that followed, I read a lot of scholarly literature about existentialism and about Sartre's philosophy, and I became increasingly suspicious of the way that Beauvoir was described, because she was someone who Sartre scholars would write about often as a historical witness to Sartre's greatness, mm. instead of as someone who contributed to the development of existentialism herself. Apart from the second sex, I mean, you, you can't really deny the significance of the second sex. But even there, I kept encountering this word applied, that Beauvoir applied Sartre's ideas to the woman question. So I have to say that it was never my intention to write a biography of Simone de Beauvoir <laughs> until quite recently. But eventually my suspicion grew into shock, frankly, and, and then the feeling that something needed to be done about this. Yeah, it seems unjust. And I think that's an understatement, to be honest. The second sex really kept me company. When I was traveling through France, I felt like that was such a great time to immerse myself in it in my 20s. And um, it just every page to me was a revelation and made so much sense. And to then hear and read about in this book, the fact that others have suggested that wasn't her own original thought is really just absurd to me. But I can see how this constant sexism and discrimination that goes on with women who are intellectuals and thinkers in their own right is um, obviously a very, very long historical phenomenon. And it comes up again and again in this book, how she's constantly, I guess, undermined and then also her own self-confidence undermined, which is once again surprising to me. What I love about this book was how you bring it back to Simone de Beauvoir and who she is as a person and that that is actually an important part of her philosophical thought and her literary writing. And I wanted to bring up what you also raise in the book, which is the two kind of traditional approaches that one often has or sees in philosophy when talking about any major figure, but particularly if we're thinking about philosophy, which is there are kind of two main approaches, and one is heavily biographical um, and seems to distort the picture, and the other it almost takes it so far out of the picture that it kind of ahistoricizes things and and really takes it out of the context of which it was born out of. So I wanted to ask you what your approach was in this book. How did you approach Simone? So my aim was to navigate between those approaches and to look for the kinds of conceptual abstractions that philosophers like to think are true of humans in general, but also to pay attention to the concrete historical situation that was the condition of Beauvoir's thinking what she did. So the, the two approaches that you outline are, are sometimes referred to as compartmentalizing, on the one hand, that life belongs in a separate compartment to the work, or reducing the work to the life. And I didn't want to say, look, Beauvoir's philosophy is just, it's all autobiography, because I don't think that's the case. There's more to say about autobiography and whether it's philosophy, and I'll come back to that. But neither did I want to say that the life should be kept completely separate, because Beauvoir herself was committed to the view that there should be integrity. She wanted to have integrity between what she thought and how she lived. And at some points, she came to view her thinking as, as morally wrong, and therefore to, to sort of judge retrospectively that she hadn't she hadn't lived as well as she could. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important aspect of what the philosophical life can be, that reflectiveness on how to live and the practice of living. So yeah, so my, my attempt was to, to look at how she lived, but also to raise questions that I do think are recurring human questions about 
the importance of love in human life and you know whether there's a meaning in life, what it might mean to have a personal identity. But of course, Beauvoir is a skeptic about that because she's an existentialist. But I think in, in her case, the philosophy is just so rich that I wanted to weave it through the life, partly because that's how it developed in time as she became a different sort of person. So just come back to the autobiography point. Beauvoir, after she wrote The Second Sex, had many letters from readers, that obviously from her intellectual kind of milieu in Paris, but also from women who said, why have you written this book in a thousand pages of dense philosophical jargon? It's too important to be so inaccessible to many of France's readers. And so in the 1950s, she turned to writing the four volumes of autobiography. I don't think she knew there were before at the beginning, but she, she started the first. And in the beginning of The Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, she said that she wanted to describe her own childhood using the theory of the second sex, but without the language of philosophy and psychoanalysis. So she was sort of making of her own life an example of the theory of the second sex. And it was only at that point that she reached a much wider audience with her feminist work. And shortly thereafter, the women's liberation movement in France kicked off. And what I find interesting is that her autobiographies, they're not considered philosophy by many. They're considered works of literature. They've been added to the aggregation in France in literature, but not philosophy. And by contrast, if you look at someone like Rousseau, Rousseau wrote his Confessions, which is an autobiographical document, and it is considered a work of philosophy. Uh, if you look at St. Augustine, for example, who wrote the famous Confessions, there you have the passionate interiority of a person thinking through the meaning of his life and, and the history of his own life, along with philosophical questions, and that's considered philosophy. So I'm curious, to put it mildly, mm. about why, in Beauvoir's case, thinking about becoming a woman is not considered philosophy. Yeah. Oh, my blood's boiling right now. I mean, the whole second sex is about creating this category of other. And it reminds me that women's ideas and thinking is often put in a separate category intellectually. Even when we're studying scholarly topics in history, for example, there's always a women's week or a gender week. There's not a gender lens throughout the entire course. And it just annoys me. So yeah, I'm not surprised, but also really disappointed that that's the case, given she's so influential. Yeah, it is. It is. It is disappointing and it's not surprising to me anymore, but I wish it was. <laughs> yeah, no doubt you're teaching your students the right way of doing things. Well, I, I teach them many ways and let them decide for themselves which is the right <laughs> way, but yes. <laughs> A true academic. I was thinking before, I mean, I'm trying to remember which person it was in Simone de Beauvoir's um, life who was saying that, was it something like her life was philosophy? or philosophy was her life? There was something about her life and philosophy being so intertwined that they couldn't be separated. Yes. So she, she wrote herself that there is no divorce between philosophy and life in an essay in the 1940s, and that every living step is a philosophical choice. And this is um, a text that I think is quite important. It's not the only place in her work where she says that she wants integrity between living and thinking. But yeah, I think that's one of the places where she puts it most beautifully. And it seems that throughout her life, that's exactly what she was doing. Whether she achieved it well or not at different points is another thing. And no human being is perfect. And you certainly show what her flaws are as well as what her strengths are. I wanted to go back to her early years because it's something that I feel is rarely ever written about or spoken of. 
And um, it certainly surprised me because I wasn't aware of her upbringing or her childhood and also the role that religion did play given her mother, Francoise, was a devout Catholic and a very, I guess, strong character in her life. And her and her sister really struggled with a lot of the stifling types of management of their behaviour and lives. But I, I just wanted to ask you, given also that you do have an interest in theology as well, what was Beauvoir grappling with in her early years, in her formative years of her teens and 20s? Because I know that you do focus a lot of attention on her diaries, which seem to be a very, very important resource that hasn't been able to be utilised. And I guess the other fact is that we haven't really had access to those diaries for that long, or at least in the English-speaking world. So in terms of her grappling with religion as well in those early years, what kind of role did that play? Yeah, so I think it was extremely significant. So I want to comment first on, on your comment that you hadn't heard so much about her, her childhood, because I think this, this is, uh, it's really important because many discussions of Beauvoir, at least philosophically, often begin with the point at which she met Sartre, mm. as though her life up to that point was insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, given her own theory of, of how human beings develop, it's nonsense. And so I wanted to, f to focus on her childhood because I think in feminism, more broadly, there's often a lot of negativity towards religion or outright dismissal of religion instead of recognizing that in feminist history, many feminists have rooted their claims to equality in theological sources or religious sources. Mm. Um, and I think now one of the areas I find interesting are the kind of conflicts between certain forms of so-called Western feminism and religious women in contexts that are not predominantly Christian, so especially in Muslim countries. So this is, it's very interesting to me, the, the relationship between feminism and religion more broadly. But in Beauvoir's case, she was raised by a Catholic mother and a secular father. So in, in France, there's this culture of uh, laicisme, the, the kind of laic or sec secular culture. And her father very much belonged to that side of the French intellectual commitment, and her mother was devout. And so she, she says in her memoirs that she attributes her desire to question to being brought up in this environment where radically different visions of the world were presented to her from the beginning. Yeah. But in childhood, she was very passionately Catholic herself. Uh, she wanted to become a nun. And in, in her teenage years, she worked for a Catholic social justice movement called the Equipe Sociale, teaching in poor communities in Paris. And so she was, she was very much committed to Catholic thought, but also to this part of Catholicism, which thinks that social justice is an important part of what it means to be a Christian. And then she became more and more interested in philosophy. And at that time, France was receiving the works of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. And so we know from her student diaries that she was thinking about things like whether there could be a meaning to her life in the wake of the death of God, because she was exposed to different forms of atheism. And so for her, these were very personal matters, because uh, like I've said already, she did want this integrity between thinking and living. It's, and so if it wasn't intellectually defensible that there was a God. This was going to transform her life pretty dramatically. So yes, yeah, so she... 
I mean, it's it's a it's an involved story. No, I know, <laughs> and it's in the book, so I don't I don't want to say too much about it. But I think she carried forward with her what she called her thirst for the absolute. So she does reject belief in God, but she at various points in her later writing she talks about her desire for the absolute, for this kind of this being who would be the maker of the universe and the person who sees things without any of the imperfections that that human perspective usually involves. Mm, it's an understandable desire, really. And it seems like it's a very common one. And um, the reason why I also loved this book was because it did pay a lot of attention to her early years. And it seems like if you ignore these key parts before she meets Sarch, you're really actually ignoring or perhaps even falling into a danger of misinterpreting her work and also her development. And we'll get to that in just a second, but I did want to raise one other point around religion, which was that she used religion in a way, as you say, to see that boys and girls were equal because they both had souls. And that to me was really interesting, was to see that she she kind of had this moment um, of grappling with that and thinking, well, actually, she was reassured by religion in, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is... Um... There's a particular Christian doctrine that has inspired feminists from at least the 17th century, because in the in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, when there's the, the account of creation, it says that both man and woman were created in the image of God. So there's this humanity is created in God's image, male and female, according to Genesis. And the levelers in England use this text to argue that if men and women were both in the image of God, then they should both be able to speak and have authority in the church and outside the church eventually. So I think different kinds of Christian teaching, whether it's about souls or the image of God, have have inspired feminists quite a lot in the sort of, well, you could probably trace it back further than the 17th century, but it's quite clearly there in some 17th century texts. It is. It's a, such an interesting subject, and sadly, I can't keep asking about it. But maybe <laughs> another time. Um, in terms of philosophy and Beauvoir, the student, she went to the Sorbonne, and I know that Jean Paul went to an entirely different institution, the École Normale Supérieure. And I know that you raise in this book that there's a very clear distinction and many um, people in France would kind of know the associations with different schools that people were going to. And of course, Beauvoir also knew that. But I also, I did want to bring in the fact that you highlight in the book, Simone really wanted to do philosophy and she was very, very driven to do that. But she actually had pushback from her parents about pursuing this life this life of thinking, which it's clear was an internal driver for her from her very, very early years in childhood. And I wanted to ask about her life as a, philosoph a philosophy student. It was fascinating to read about. And I guess it, it covers that period of time just before she meets Jean-Paul Sartre and what it was that she was thinking about in her early life. And one of those areas in particular was freedom. And I think that also really struck me was, oh, this thing that we think of as being associated with such is something that she was thinking about before she met him. And that just really struck me. And you bring in some of the influences in Beauvoir's life, some of the philosophical influences and why she was thinking about freedom. Obviously, it was also part of her really important exams. So that was one of the reasons. But I wanted to ask a little bit about her early thinking around freedom and why she was so interested in this particular area. 
Yes. Well, why she's interested in this particular area, I think there's a kind of boring answer to that, which is that everyone who studies philosophy has to study freedom. (laughs) Whether you're studying it in political philosophy or whether you're studying it from the point of view of questions of freedom and determinism. Mm. And so I'll say I'll say more about that. So that's the boring answer that if you read philosophy, you will read some things on on this concept. Um, but in Beauvoir's case, she read a particular philosopher, Alfred Fouillet, in her her Catholic high school textbook. And Fouillet had a particular idea of freedom, which was in disagreement with some of the more famous French theorists of freedom. So Rousseau said that man is born free, but everywhere in chains. So there's this idea that we have this innate freedom and that living in society is a, a form of bondage. And Fouillet claimed that one is not born, but rather becomes free. And he thought that freedom was something that you aspire to as a human being. And so we we have to start distinguishing between different kinds of political freedom and what uh, might be in the French tradition more accurately described as a spiritual freedom. So in, in Fouillet's case, he thought that the idea of freedom itself inspired us so much that the desire for freedom could override other desires. So for example, if you are a smoker, you if you are an addicted smoker, then you will have desire for cigarettes. But if you desire to be free <laughs> of uh, smoking, then that desire for freedom, not easily, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not like, every, it's widely known that it's not an easy task, <laughs> but that desire for freedom can override other desires. And so Beauvoir read Fouillet, and she read Rousseau, and she read many other philosophers of freedom, and she became suspicious that this freedom was, uh, whichever concept you adopt, was presented as the birthright of men, and it was taken to be against nature for men to be unfree. By contrast, she thought that it was taken to be against nature for women to refuse to submit to forms of unfreedom, and in particular to the domination of men. So she she began just approaching these questions because they were in her philosophy textbook, uh, but quickly she made this link between conceiving of freedom in different ways and criticizing the conceptions uh, for assuming a male standpoint or at least for being hypocritical and not extending that kind of freedom to all Yeah, and there was some really interesting quotes from Beauvoir around this and bringing in particularly human relationships and love relationships and the issue of freedom. And obviously if we cast our minds back to the time that Beauvoir is living in, which you do so beautifully in this book, the position of women in France is very different even from the position of women in Australia who got the vote far earlier than French women did. And it's really shocking that that's the case, but there were so many things that women in France didn't have legally um, and that they were also similarly to many or most Western countries expected to marry and expected to not have a vocation or a career as such. And that was something that came later on. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about this connection with love and relationships because it's not just about, I guess, a touchy-feely thing about what is love, but it's also a very pragmatic, real situation that women were grappling with in a very real sense. And some women kind of just passively accepted it and then other women like Beauvoir did not passively accept this situation. And one of the quotes that 
I really liked was she said that what she wanted in her life was, quote, a love that accompanies me through life, not that absorbs all my life. She thought that love should not make all else disappear, but should simply tint it with new nuances. And um, I'm sure her position probably evolved and changed the way she might have expressed it, but I, I really wanted to ask about her conception of love and how it's tied to this idea of freedom and agency and crafting your own path. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that one of the central themes of Beauvoir's work is this concept of love. And it's a kind of existentialist cliche that that freedom is uh, central to existentialism. But in Beauvoir's case, she was unwilling to give up on the centrality of love in human life. And partly that's because her philosophy includes a developmental component. So before she wrote The Second Sex, she wrote two works of moral philosophy in the 1940s, Paris and Sinius and the Ethics of Ambiguity. And there she says, partly responding to Sartre's philosophy, that it is inseparable from the experience of being human to care about how you are seen by other people. So in Being in Nothingness, Sartre's magnum opus from 1943, He had a very pessimistic view of human relationships, where he said that ultimately humans just oscillate between what he calls being in the subject position or the object position. And basically, either you're dominated or you're submissive. And there's no such thing in being a nothingness as reciprocity, where you engage with each other on an even plane. And Beauvoir said, look, if you want to understand being human, you need to look at it in a kind of what we would now call a lifespan developmental psychological approach. What does it mean in childhood that you want to be seen by others? Well, in childhood, you want, be thought, to have parents who affirm the value of what you do. And that when a child shows a parent a drawing, they're not doing it because they want their parents to be indifferent. They want affirmation. <laughs> and she thinks that... Um, as much as adults would like to claim to be indifferent to the desire for the affirmation of others, it remains an important component of human life. And she thinks of this in, in terms of love, I think largely because of the Augustinian background of the Catholicism in which she grew up. So St. Augustine, his theory of what it means to be human is that we will always love. We will not always love the things that are good for us. We will not always desire the things that are good for us. But our lives are shaped by what we love. Mm. And in Beauvoir's case, she saw in childhood, her parents had a relationship that changed over time, but it was a relationship in which her mother had no choices. And her mother adopted an approach of a sacrificial devotion. She kind of saw it as her Via Della Rosa, her sacrificial path that she needed to stay in this marriage and raise her children and, and be a good Catholic wife and mother. But Beauvoir didn't think that either of her parents were showing the kind of love that she thought was one of the beautiful things about humanity. <laughs> yeah. And so, so she goes on and she, she thematizes this in various places. So in her student diaries, one of the things that I was really dis- excited to find is that she's already thinking about the philosophy of love when she's 18 years old. And she's thinking, this is too important to reject altogether. Because one option is to say, look, I'm just, I'm not going to I'm not going to get involved in these kinds of relationships. But she doesn't think that's really going to work. And so she describes two vices of love. So two ways that love can go wrong. One by being excessive and the other by being deficient. 
So she calls one narcissism, which is similar to the kind of usual sense of the word, which is where someone in a loving relationship, a dyadic loving relationship, focuses too much on themselves. And on the other pole, you have what she calls devotion, where the devoted lover constantly tries to do what they think is good for the other person, but never actually asks the other person whether that is what they want. Mm. <laughs> so they, so there's this kind of, but I'm completely devoted to you. I don't think about myself. But in actual fact, it fails really to be authentic love because in authentic love, there has to be equilibrium or reciprocity between both people. And so what, she, what she's saying is that ultimately authentic love involves a moral commitment on behalf of both parties and that it is an ongoing task. It's not something that you get once that sticks around forever. Mm. And yeah, so she develops this starting in her teens and then in her 40s comes back to it. Well, in her 30s and 40s, but there's a there's a window of time where there's no written record of her thinking about that. It is great that her diaries have offered this insight. One of the related sections or quotes from the book in the second chapter was about marriage as well, because that's obviously related. And you say that she concluded that marriage is, quote, fundamentally immoral because, in fact, and I'm now going to quote again, um, that every choice was, quote, constantly in the making. It is repeated every time that I become conscious of it. And so she wondered, how could you make this major life choice once, perhaps in your 20s, and you're making that choice for yourself for the future 40 years? And maybe that does work out for some people, but that question around what makes a person and that they're constantly making choices and and they're becoming, it seems like she believes that's fundamentally incompatible with a concept like marriage. Yes. So when she's 18, she comes to that conclusion. And I think, I don't know if she would have stuck to it altogether, because later on, she says that so it's true that she refused Sartre's proposal of marriage. It's less widely known. He actually proposed to at least four women he was engaged before he met Simone de Beauvoir, but he failed the aggregation the year before he and Beauvoir both took it. And after the failing the exam, the family of his fiancée called off the marriage. You know, there's this kind of legend that they were they both refused bourgeois conventions, but in, at, at several points in his life, Sartre was willing to enter into marriage. Beauvoir, on the other hand, I think she wouldn't have said that all marriage is immoral later in her life because she's willing to acknowledge that there are joint projects. And marriage would be such a joint project. Mm. Uh, so if you decide to commit yourself to someone else and to keep reaffirming that commitment as a joint project, then I think you could get a Beauvoirian conception of moral marriage. <laughs> but certainly in her teenage years, in her teenage years, she thought it was um, a really bad deal. And understandably so. I mean, yeah. women in France didn't get the vote until 1944. They first exercised it in 1945. In terms of the ability to open bank accounts, they had to wait about two more decades to do that without a male relative. And on the subject of the, the Sorbonne and the ENS, which you brought up earlier, there was a, a quite amusingly entitled uh, ENS for ladies, for young, pour les jeunes filles, for the young ladies, which opened at the beginning of, well, it was open in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but women were not admitted to the ENS, uh, where the men went, until the 1980s. So in terms of women's access to the vote or to bank accounts or to parental rights or even to study in the most prestigious halls of learning, the change was slow. 
very, very, very slow. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. That does bring me to the introduction of Sartre and the École Normale Supérieure, which was obviously, as you can tell, like a very revered place to study. And there were three men, um, young men, in a group. And Simone was introduced to one of them in particular, who she kind of was far more interested in at the very beginning than Sartre, which also is something that we don't really know unless we've read your book or, or are more aware of things. And I just wanted to ask about that initial meeting and then how their early relationship developed in a philosophical and friendship sense, because it seems like that has formed the crux of their relationship over the entire span of their lifetimes. Yes. So this, I find this, this part funny. I really chuckled when I was reading her, her student diaries because for months, Simone de Beauvoir actually avoided meeting Sartre. So she had met this young man, René Mahou, and he was a love interest of hers. And she spent months with Mao kind of being quite dreamy, <laughs> but, but enjoying, enjoying the discussions of philosophy. In fact, Mao is the one who gave her the, um, the nickname Castor or the Beaver, uh, because she was so industrious and hardworking. So she, she was enjoying the company of men because she, over the, this sort of period in the 1920s, when she's leaving the Catholic girls' school, suddenly she's exposed to a different range of ideas, but also to a much more rigorous intellectual conversation. Um, so she spent time with Mo, and Sartre and Mo knew each other, and Sartre really wanted to meet Beauvoir. And uh, so one of the first instances where he attempted to arrange this, Beauvoir sent her sister, Hélène. <laughs> And she told Alain to tell Sartre a lie about um, her being out of town. And uh, Alain came home and said, I don't know what Maho is on about. Like, this is Jean-Paul is not very interesting. <laughs> but he kept persisting. And so eventually she joined this small study group in the run-up to their uh, oral examinations. And she was very impressed by Sartre's intellectual generosity. So she described the way in which he took pains in helping this small group of students revise. And she, she, she kind of grew into having quite a lot of respect for his, his intellect. But what's fascinating from the point of view of the legendary couple is that within weeks, she had grown to have very strong feelings for him. But she also wrote in her diaries uh, that if Sartre was going to play a central role in her life, it was, quote, neither in her body or her heart, where there many others could be, but that he was the incomparable friend of her thought. And so very early on, she realizes that what's what brings them together, if, if you imagine being a, a somewhat intellectually lonely young Catholic woman, and then meeting someone who shares your passion, not only for philosophy, but also for literature, because Beauvoir just had a tremendous appetite for reading. So someone where you don't have to explain plot lines or, or say what you mean by uh, talking about Kant or, or Plato or whatever it is that you want to talk about, that's a tremendous connection. And so 
what was fascinating from my point of view is learning that very early on, she identified that as the thing that made their relationship something she wanted to commit to for the long term. Yeah, it seems so, so important. And it kind of, to me, signals um, a greater importance in any relationship is having that other foundation, not just a romantic foundation, but the friendship foundation and a kind of meeting of the minds is something that's so special. It sounds like it was very, very important in terms of their development of their philosophical ideas, which I do want to get to in just a tick. Um, But one of the things that you raise throughout this book as being one of the, the huge things that people have been so fixated upon when we talk about Beauvoir and Sartre is their romantic and particularly sexual relationship and the kind of grand agreement that they came up with. I believe it was in the Luxembourg Gardens. Was it near the Medici Fountain? That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a beautiful fountain. Yes, it's a good setting for this kind of conversation. Could you share with us what they discussed and how early it was into their friendship? Yes. So this was in 1929. And the the way the story goes is that Sartre wanted to be this kind of adventurer. He had great plans to go off and study and travel around the world. And so he, he, he presented himself as someone who wasn't going to commit to a conventional life. So they had this conversation in which they agreed that uh, they would be each other's necessary relationship, but that they could have contingent relationships on the side. So this is sometimes referred to as a polyamorous, like an early form of polyamorous commitment. and. What's fascinating is that it's provoked a lot of controversy subsequently. So some people are inspired by it as an example of a kind of relationship where there is freedom and at the same time a kind of fidelity. But many feminists have taken it as a a concession of Beauvoir to Sartre's libido, basically, which I don't think is historically justified. So there's been a lot of criticism of Beauvoir's participation in, in this relationship. And surprisingly, less criticism of Sartre's. Um, so it has, I think, it, 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 the, the relationship that divides opinion. And, you know, since since the 40s, when Beauvoir and Sartre uh, kind of rose to fame in France and beyond, they have been a very divisive couple, um, partly for their political choices, but partly also because of this legend of what their relationship was like. Well, I mean, they were making a decision in the late 1920s, which... I mean, that is a radical decision for the time that they were in. One of the things I want to pick up on there was that you say in an interview that she gave later in life, she was asked if there was anything she wished in hindsight that she had included in her memoirs. And her answer was, quote, a frank and balanced account of my own sexuality, a truly sincere one from a feminist point of view. And that, you know, you were talking there about sexual appetite and blaming Sartre for that, but it sounds like although he loved the chase and he loved a challenge of seducing women when he was quite aware of his own, you know, physical deficiencies and he wasn't that attractive, but he obviously had a great charm to him, that often throughout Simone's writing we see that, you know, she's talking about her own sexual appetite and desires and that they weren't being met by Sartre at many points in her life and that does link back to the the foundation of friendship which seems to have been so constant 
throughout their entire relationship that even when, you know, the sex was no longer there or the the physical intimacy was no longer an important part of their story, that there was something else that was enduring. But I wanted to ask about that, that kind of account of her sexuality and the way that she um, experienced it and wrote about it and when you were doing your research and looking at it to you did did you kind of agree that maybe she wasn't she didn't give a full and frank balanced account of her own sexuality when she was writing of her own life absolutely yes and there are some reasons why that might be the case so um on the start relationship one of the new sources that's become available very recently in 2018 uh, was the letters that Beauvoir sent to Claude Lanzmann, uh, who's the only man she ever lived with. She lived with him in the 1950s. He's he's also the only the only man that she ever um, used, the only lover, I should say, to use the um, informal form of you in French. So she used you with him, where she always used vous with ça. And the Lanzmann letters, in, in one of them, there's a line where she says that her relationship with Sartre, she talks about it being uh, sexually dissatisfying, but also that it was never a reciprocal relationship. So I think she found that relationship disappointing on many levels, although deeply fulfilling on others. <laughs> but in terms of the sexuality question, uh, we know now that she she did not tell the full story of her lesbian relationships in her, mem- in her memoirs. And that's brought accusations against her, like that she was lying or duplicitous. But frankly, I think that that's a fairly... It's, it's too simplistic, like even if it were true, uh, because the fact is that in, in French law, there are privacy laws that are much stricter than they are in other parts of the world. And so she can't write about the relationships that she's had with other women without uh, fearing for uh, legal consequences. But also she cared about these women. She had relationships with all of them until they or she died. And so... She certainly didn't include uh, a frank account of her sexuality. Uh, But I think another part of the picture that's worth bearing in mind here is that when The Second Sex was published, even though it was published in an academic voice, she was shamed. Uh, She referred to the reception of The Second Sex as the the second volume as the scandal uh, because people wrote to her calling her well, either, you know, frigid and nymphomaniac. She had propositions uh, from people who called themselves active members of the first sex. Um, François Mauriac, uh, the, the Catholic, esteemed Catholic novelist, wrote a letter to, to one of Beauvoir's colleagues on Les Temps Modernes and said that uh, his employer's vagina had no secrets. And so there was this very personal attack on Beauvoir, even in the second sex, for, for saying that women's sexuality should be discussed. <laughs> yeah. So if she had been frank about her own, uh, I think, well, I can't imagine really what the, what the reception to that would have been. But anyway. Yeah, no, it is really shocking. And you're just talking about there the negative reception to the second sex and particularly, you know, conversations around female sexuality and um, women and their experience of sex and relationships. It was interesting that you said that there was a more welcoming readership, which was the next generation of younger people who read the book as being something without precedent, 
something that talked frankly about female experiences that had been taboo, which of course it was very much taboo for um, Beauvoir when she was growing up and in a Catholic environment, you know, she really had no idea in her early years how babies were even made. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was that, you know, some people you say in France were so desperate for information about their own bodies that they read it as a sex manual. And I wanted to ask about that, given that The Second Sex was published late in the 1940s. I mean, what was Simone de Beauvoir saying about sex and female sexuality that was so eye-opening to younger French people? So I think that depends on which French people. Um, so one of the things that I think is insightful about Beauvoir's philosophy is that, in, in a sense, she's a particularist. So she thinks that each woman occupies a particular situation, which is going to make it difficult to give general answers uh, to the question of, you know, what the, what their vocation is or what oppression means in the context of that woman's life. So, but I think that that uh, you know, talking about female pleasure. So Michelle Leboeuf is a French feminist who's written on this and who refers to women reading it to get information about their bodies. And my impression is that there just wasn't um, there wasn't very much available that talked about female bodies from a female point of view. And one of the criticisms that Beauvoir makes in The Second Sex is of the philosophies of the body in her contemporaries, so Sartre and Merleau-Ponty. You know, Western philosophy has a uh, has a reputation for being fairly anti embodiment. Mm. Uh, It's about the life of the mind. And in the 1940s and 43 and 45, Sartre and Merleau-Ponty both uh, wrote phenomenologies of the body. And Beauvoir criticized them for claiming that you could do a phenomenology of the body because there are certain embodied experiences that not everyone shares. And I think one of the things that people found insightful and still do is um, her analysis of the way that women, young women going through puberty um, often experience uh, a process of recognizing that their bodies are objects in the eyes of others. And so they can feel alienated from their own bodies um, because they know that they're not objects. They know that they are human beings uh, with, you know, a living consciousness and desires for the world. And so one of the processes that Beauvoir describes is this this feeling of alienation in female embodiment, because you don't want to affirm that you're an object in the eyes of others. But a lot of culture, especially when it comes to sex and romantic life, encourages women to participate in their own objectification. Yeah, it reminded me when you were recounting her life as a teacher that she would turn up to class wearing these beautiful, you know, silk shirts and she would put on makeup and, you know, she was choosing her own way of being and dressing that fulfilled her needs and desires. And it's it reminded me of that constant tension that a lot of women might feel around you know, having a certain way that makes them feel good about themselves, but then also at the same sense or in the same turn, seemingly encouraging attention. Yes. Now, I, this is, it's true. This is, this is one of those areas of feminism beauty where there's, uh, there are many contradicting points of view. Um, but I do think that having a long memory helps, or at least can help here. So, you know, it used to be in ancient Egypt that both men and women wore coal on their eyes because they, they liked the way the eyes looked. Mm. And in you know the history of the high heel was that it was first worn by men who wanted to be taller, um, and so I think um, 
it's not the case that, that women are alone in, in attempting to present themselves in certain ways. Of course, this is a very, it's culturally variable. But Beauvoir, she did, uh, yeah, she certainly took pleasure in how she dressed. Uh, but I, I mean, it's very difficult to know what one does for one's own sake and what one does because of how you want to look in the eyes of others. I think that's one of the perpetually ambiguous things, being human. Yeah, there's no clear answer, I don't think. I wanted to bring in a couple of the key points that are quite illuminating in this book around the role of Beauvoir's philosophy and thought in Jean-Paul Sartre's work because it's often thought, as you've already said at the beginning of this conversation, that people have assumed that uh, Simone de Beauvoir was kind of following Sartre. She was having these long and lengthy philosophical conversations with him, but really he was the one influencing her and it was very much a one-sided situation. And I wanted to bring in what is really the most well, one of the most important moments in Sartre's uh, philosophy, which is his lecture, Existentialism is a Humanism, and also his very, very hefty book, Being a Nothingness. And the role that Simone de Beauvoir played in those discussions around freedom, particularly you bring up a really great or a couple of really great examples, Bad Faith being one of those early examples where, you know, Sartre and Beauvoir had already been speaking about and um, having a dialogue about bad faith in the 1930s. Yes. So one of the difficulties with them. With working on Beauvoir and Sartre and the question of influence between them, because uh, this is this has been the subject of academic exploration for uh, some decades now, uh, is that in the 1930s we don't have very much in the way of documentary evidence to look for. You know who's using which term first or a, cl- a clear development of a concept. And in the research that exists in this area, there are some people who go so far as to say that Sartre stole the philosophy of being in nothingness from Beauvoir. So Edward and Kate Fulbrook make this claim. And um, some others uh, might not put it quite that way, but in, in some parts of the kind of Beauvoir studies world, Sartre is definitely a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, But increasingly in... in the scholarly literature, people are starting to see parts of their work as mutually influenced. Um, and I think there are some cases where you can say, look, Beauvoir had this idea. And, you know, if Sartre writes her letter and says, thank you, your idea of this has made me think this, which he does in some cases, then I think that gives us pretty good evidence of uh, direction of influence. Mm. But uh, increasingly in French uh, work on this topic, people are using a compound adjective, Beauvoir au Sartrean to refer to an existentialism that was the result of both their work. Mm. And I think um, I'm very interested in this from the point of view of thinking about what it means to do philosophy, because we, we have research now about uh, on the pedagogy side, which shows that when you have philosophical friendships, students who form friendships with other students who are studying philosophy, uh, they tend to perform much better because they're not just doing things in the classroom. They're really discussing the ideas and and pushing each other in ways that help them grow. And I think uh, what Beauvoir and Sartre had was the relationship where they built on their commonalities and they didn't agree about everything. I think it's very important to acknowledge that. <laughs> but they agreed about enough to be able to further some joint projects together. Uh, so I'm, I'm not so interested in saying so-and-so thought this, except insofar as it's important because... The history of Beauvoir's reception has been largely a sexist reception, where she has been taken to be Sartre's 
megaphone, basically. <laughs> yeah, and even in that conversation when they felt like they'd come across something and really started to understand what living in bad faith meant, you know, she used the word we when she was recounting the conversations that she had been having. And I think, you know, a lot of people, as you say, have criticised Sartre for not giving Beauvoir enough credit for the things that she did with his work, um, which may or may not be fair. But I did want to to highlight her role in ethics and the fact that she really thoroughly seemed to disagree with his very radical conception of freedom because it didn't have at its kind of, maybe not its core, but certainly as an essential component, an ethical component. And you said in Being in Nothingness, it really was about two pages, was it, that was dedicated to ethics and that Beauvoir really was the one who developed that. Yes, that's right. So Sartre became known for a kind of radical freedom, according to which whatever circumstances you might face in life, you are free to choose how you respond to the circumstances. That's like it's somewhat simplistic. But um Beauvoir disagreed and she said uh, her challenge to him in the nineteen thirties, before she wrote a philosophical essay disagreeing with him, was that well, what kind of freedom can a woman in a harem achieve? She thought that situations are different and therefore so are freedoms because we are we're, we're limited by the context in which we make decisions and we're also limited by our, our pasts and our access to the possibility so one of the things that i think is wonderful in Beauvoir's philosophy is how much consideration she gives to the importance of possibility and imagination and in, in becoming a self and one of the things that she does in the second sex is to say women's possibilities are constrained not just through legislation, but by the way that culture presents their possibilities. And so in that work, she's building on this criticism that she makes of Sarge in 1944, just after Being in Nothingness is published, where she develops her uh, existentialist ethics. And she she says that existentialism doesn't imply an ethics, and therefore in this essay that that she's trying to provide that. And it has been largely, not entirely in, in scholarly circles, but overlooked because it wasn't translated into English until 2006. So what that means is that for about 70 years of the reception of French existentialism, we had much more access to Sartre's writings, and we didn't see Beauvoir's role so clearly in the 1940s and, yeah, contributing to that. Yeah. And is that essay is the Pyrrhus and Sinius essay? That's right, yes. I hadn't even heard of it, which is surprising because I have read a bit of her work. So I was like, wow, I've got to read another thing by Simone de Beauvoir. But you say that she had written in that essay that every person needs the freedom of other people. And in a sense, we always want it because it's only the freedom of others that prevents us from atrophying into thinking of ourselves as things, as objects. And, you know, it did, it's really sounded like she did give so much more complexity to the idea of freedom than just what Sartre had offered, even though he did, you know, offer a very <laughs> extensive systematic approach to freedom in being and nothingness. Yeah, I think in, in Sartre's case, so being and nothingness is a complex work of philosophy, but it doesn't allow for much hope for the, possibi- the possibility of an ethical life. Uh, or a life with others that is, I mean, he, he says explicitly that um, being with others is, is conflict. Hmm. Um, and he's, he's responding to conversations and, and philosophy, like Heidegger, 
who claimed that uh, there's a kind of fundamental mitzvah or uh, being with others that characterizes human existence. And Sartre said, no, we're alienated from others. Like that is the human condition is the state of alienation and conflict. And Beauvoir disagrees with Sartre about this. She says that the human condition is a condition of possibility. And that if, if it weren't for the fact that we can look at other people and see our possibilities reflected in their eyes, you know, or in conversation or in joint projects for the future, you know, whether they're political or personal, then human life would be much worse. Mm. <laughs> so she's, she's disagreeing with him about the nature of, um, of being with others and, and about the concept of freedom. And uh, yeah, I think she definitely got it right. <laughs> yeah. It is really interesting. I'm so glad that she did continue to develop those ideas. Um, one of the other things to close out our discussion that I wanted to raise, because it does seem like it's a really important point, was the development of the second sex as a like an idea for a book. And you say that she had liked a book called Manhood by Michelle Levy and was inspired to write about a similar thing herself Um, And her question was, what has it meant to me to be a woman? And, of course, the story that many people really think of is, oh, well, Sartre said you need to, to think about writing about this from, you know, you should think about your life as a woman and go to the Bibliothèque Nationale. Um, I remember reading this story and going, oh, yes, well, he came up with the idea. But it wasn't really that simplistic. And it also brings us to another kind of misconception that I wanted to draw in together to that that question, which was that really important line about one is not born a woman, but becomes a woman. That is another kind of really important line that seems to be hotly debated and a bit of a misconception as to what it really meant to Beauvoir when she wrote it because of the different translations we've had access to. So I just wanted to bring in those two kind of things that seem to have distorted the reception of of her work, particularly in the English-speaking world, and our conception of why she wrote The Second Sex, but also what she was really thinking when she wrote that line. So on the the inspirations for The Second Sex, I think the Michel Lery book was important, but also uh, in a letter to Nelson Algren, she describes the project somewhat differently. So in, in the 1940s, she spent uh, some time in the United States giving lectures on women's writing in France and existentialism and uh, various things, mainly in New England. And she spent time in New York uh, with a friend of hers, uh, Richard Wright, uh, who was a black man who wrote the novel Black Boy. And Richard Wright took her to Harlem, to the Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, where there uh, was a very inspiring preacher, Adam Clayton Powell. And this was during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, when a lot of amazing writing was coming out. And there there was a lot like, uh, Harlem Renaissance theology actually inspired a lot of people. So on, on another front, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German Protestant theologian, was studying in the States uh, just a bit before this and then uh, went back to Germany to fight fascism, uh, partly, I think, because of the political message of this Christianity. And so Beauvoir saw the oppression of Black people in America, and she she read Gunnar Myrdal's book, An American Dilemma, which was about the race question in the United States. And in her letter to Nelson Algren, she said, I want to write a book as important as this book, but about women. And so there were multiple conversations and multiple intellectual friendships, I think, that um, that, that fed into her desire to, to write this project. 
but I do think that the, the, the dominant reading in the English speaking world is mistaken. Um, I think that partly for literary reasons. So Beauvoir frequently uses antiphrasis, where she takes a famous phrase uh, that she assumes her French readership will recognize, uh, and she inverts it. So I've, I've mentioned already the phrase that one is not born, but rather becomes free. And, you know, her philosophy is very much about what it means to become free um, in a political sense, but also in this, this spiritual sense, which is characteristic of, of French philosophy in the period. And it's also interesting that in the first volume of The Second Sex, she's already used exactly that formulation of sentence where she says that one is not born, but rather becomes a genius. And she's, she's asking the question, why is it that women are encouraged to think that they can't be geniuses? Um, she, she refers to Schopenhauer, who says that women can have uh, talent, but they can't be geniuses. And she's, this is another kind of question that's in the air in French philosophy, because genius is being discussed in Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. So she is interested in what it means to become a woman because she's interested in what, what human becoming means in general. But I don't think that the, the dominant reading, uh, particularly as made by Judith Butler, is actually very sensitive to Beauvoir's philosophical project. Uh, and in one of Butler's earliest essays, she mentions, like the, the first paragraph mentions Beauvoir, but then she goes on for about eight pages to talk about Sartre's philosophy um, and to assume that, that this is going to help us understand Beauvoir's project. That's really interesting. Um, you know, with that line, a woman versus woman, which has been translated differently, and it seems like even the latest English translation of the second sex is not perfect. And of course, any translation is is imperfect. You would really need to speak French to, I'm sure, appreciate some of the subtleties of her language. But in terms of how things do get lost in translation, I mean, you were talking in this book about the fact that she sees women as individuals and that, as you say, all women have a different circumstance, are dealing with a different context, and it almost feels like an early version of um, intersectionality. When I was reading, I was like, oh, she's so forward thinking for her time. But I wanted to ask about that because, you know, there is a difference between becoming a woman versus woman and what your thoughts are on that debate around which is the more correct interpretation. So my my view is that because Beauvoir is uh, committed to um, truth at the level of the concrete and particular, <laughs> that that it makes sense to include the A uh, that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Both of them make grammatical sense, but philosophically, it seems to me to make more sense to focus on the particularity of, of um, mm. that's my view. <laughs> I think I would agree. Um, mm. And by reading this book, I think you do get the sense that that, that is the right version, but of course, it, I'm sure it'll still be contested for many years to come. To finish this conversation, I wanted to leave on one thought um, and it's the thought we really started off with, which is the fact that Simone de Beauvoir thought of Jean-Paul Sartre as really being the incomparable friend of my thought. And it brought me to one of those examples in her life when you know, she was having these conversations with Sartre, philosophical conversations, and she was also getting caught up in, you know, love and her own life and you know, there are many things that she was feeling emotionally that she got caught up in at different points in her life when things got quite tumultuous. And of course, Sarch felt like, oh, well, you can just not feel those emotions and that's just a choice. But one of the things I thought was really interesting and it, it felt like it was such an important thing in their relationship was when 
in the prime of life, Beauvoir wrote that Sartre began to be irritated by her dependence on him, not because she was dependent, but because he thought she was less full of ideas than she had been when they met, that she was in danger of being the kind of woman who relinquished her independence and contented herself with being a man's helpmate, and that he was really seeking to encourage her to have that complete independence that she wanted, that she herself at the beginning of her life had thought that she really desired, which was to to not get involved in marriage because that caused all of that extra life admin and, you know, it was a, a kind of a trap in, in her sense and she couldn't have a full thinking life. What are your thoughts, I guess, about that incomparable friend of my thought? And do you feel like when you were researching this and looking through these beautiful letters and diary entries that um, I know, you know, no relationship is perfect, but it does feel like it is a particularly special relationship and that, you know, things like that, encouraging someone to be what they wanted, not what you want them to be, is such a, an important thing. Yes, I think it is a, a tremendously important thing. And in that respect, um, not in all respects, I hasten to add, uh, I do think it's an admirable relationship because one of the things that Sartre said about Beauvoir from his point of view in interviews later in life about um, the way they worked together was that when he gave her a manuscript, because he wouldn't pub- publish anything without her reading it um, until late in his life, someone said, "Well, why why did you do that? Because um, because you know because she was such a good reader. You know what 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 was what was the motivation here?" And he he said, "Because she knew what my aims were sometimes better than I did myself." Hmm. And you know, from a feminist point of view, you can look at this cynically and you can think, um, "You mean Beauvoir was doing the philosophy for you?" <laughs> <laughs> or you can look at the fact that both of them wrote uh, similar things uh, about or to each other and that they were they were stretched by the relationship with each other and to see that as something to see that as something beautiful and personally I'm inclined to think that we need to be critical in in the way we look at the depiction of the relationship but still to see something very much inspiring and admirable about that because I think they they had a tremendous generosity towards each other intellectually and I think that's it's a beautiful thing. Mm, it's so beautiful and if anyone was lucky enough to find a person who they could um, do that with and share that with they would be a very 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 lucky person and um, have a very special life so uh, yeah it's a lovely thing to watch and a lovely thing to engross yourself in and um, I do want to say Thank you for bringing this all together with such a critical mind, but also a very balanced and fair approach and to give us access to Simone de Beauvoir in a way that I've never had and that I think really does her life um, a lot of justice and brings a huge amount of nuance. And I've, I've got a newfound respect and admiration even more deeply than I did before and for both of them, in fact, and I really do thank you for that. Well, thank you. It means a lot uh, to hear you say that, I think, because um, it was a very intimidating thing to do to write a biography. So thank you. I, I did read that line in early on in the book when you were saying you were almost terrified. And I thought I would be terrified because these are very formidable figures in history. Yes, they are. And also it's a moral, I mean, I think it's a moral question as well. I, I d- tend to be suspicious of, of um, you know, the human tendency to stand in judgment over others. But Yeah, nevertheless, it's good to think about the past. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your generous time and and thought. And I hope people can read Becoming Beauvoir, A Life, which is out through Bloomsbury Academic. And um, it is an excellent book and uh, very much well worth the read. Thank you, Amy. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Um, it is great to be with you this Tuesday morning and I'm really pleased now to welcome my last guest for today, Dr David Brophy, who is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney, and we're going to be talking about the deteriorating relationship between Australia and the People's Republic of China. And David has written, uh, or he's the author of a book particularly called Uyghur Nation, and he's a historian of Uyghur nationalism, um, which I dare say we won't get into in great depth today, but it is a very fascinating area of study, um, and I welcome David now. Hi, Amy. Good to be with you. Hey, good to have you on the show and to get your expertise and insight on this issue because um, I've got to say I'm getting a kind of fatigue, uh, you know, flicking through my Twitter feed and looking through the online news um, to see that, you know, there's constant, and there has been constant for a couple of years at least, mm. probably longer, mm. of endless news stories about how, you know, China is infiltrating Australia, how they're influencing our universities, they're influencing our parliaments, um, you know, the Huawei is going to hack us and, you know, listen in on all our, com our conversations. I mean, there's like endless kind of <laughs> news about this and, you know, whether any of, the, any of it or at least half of it is true is kind of hard to tell for so many average Australians who, you know, aren't in a, a kind of intelligence agency. Agency, I guess, hmm. and are not in government. So hmm. we are in some part reliant on our government to be um, honest with us about what's happening with Australia. So first up, I did just want to ask, and I guess to set the scene for those who haven't really been following the Australia-China relationship or perhaps only know of it because of our economic ties, um, in terms of the kind of history of our nations together, maybe just more like the recent history of Turnbull, Morrison, um, etc. And of course, you could bring in Rudd if you so desire. But in terms of, you know, the relationship between Australia's leaders with China's leaders, um, how have we been faring? And like, did we start at, at a better point in, in our lives, in our lifetimes in the early thousands? Well, I think it's certainly seen better days. There's, there's no doubt about that. I think that there's been a, a sort of a tense equilibrium in the relationship for, for some decades with, uh, you know, background security concerns being balanced out by the, um, you know, the enthusiasm to uh, get rich through um, trade with China. There's been this sort of oscillating um, series of incidents and so it seems like the the space between these incidents has been increasing of, of late. I would I would say that you know 2017 was quite a significant turning point where Malcolm Turnbull quite ostentatiously announced a turn in his policy towards China. Listeners might remember he gave that speech in Chinese where he said the Australian people have have stood up. Um, that initiated what was quite a bruising period, uh, I would say, and I I think that. COVID, to some extent, has exacerbated the tendencies that were that were in play. Um, you know, we're seeing really wall-to-wall -wall, um, China in the press these days. Incidents ranging from 
questions of uh, trade disputes, obviously ongoing talk of espionage and so on, all the, the issues involving universities. Uh, and then these, you know, these high-level talks that, that continue between Australia and the United States, um, seemingly directed towards formulating some kind of plan to, to push back on, on China, all of which China sees as, as very provocative. So it's, um, it's a really sort of complicated picture. And I think that, I think that you're right that, that there have been similar inst- incidents like this in the past. But what is... What is quite distinctive about the current period is the way in which these are being presented or portrayed as all somehow linked as part Mm -hmm. of some unprecedented conspiracy by which China is seeking to subvert Australian democracy or uh, compromise Australian sovereignty as the um, the talk would have it. I'm personally quite sceptical of those sorts of uh, those sorts of talking points. I think when these incidents occur, I mean, it's the. It is the case sometimes that where there is smoke, there is a bit of fire. I think that they all require a bit of debunking. Um, I think they need to be put in context. That is to say, not to say that China is not doing anything, but we need to put China's actions alongside, you know, what other actors, including Australia, uh, are doing. And and the big issue is that often the media just moves on very quickly from having reported something that the splash goes out and the, the, you know, the news is quite sensational, something involving China. And the news cycle moves on before people really have time to, to look back and think, well, what, what was that actually? Um, was that, um, was that, you know, really what it was portrayed as? I, I could think of multiple incidents um, where there's, um, there's been very little of that kind of reflection. Mm, so much. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of examples. Mm. Even as of yesterday, mm. uh, there was an article by the ABC. Um, mm. I'll read out the heading. China's, quote, hybrid war, unquote, Beijing's mass surveillance of Australia and the world for secrets and uh, scandal, which is mm. quite a broad and sweeping claim. Mm. And then there was one quote which stuck out in the minds of many who um, follow China, and this really, I think, I found really surprising. Um, quote, the East Asian mind and the mm. Western mind are fundamentally different in the way uh, they think. Uh, this is their, this is quoting um, someone in this article, Enos said, Western thought is based on causality. East Asian thinking is like a spider's web. Yeah, no, uh, that was quite. <laughs> what are all the problems with that? <laughs> like uh, many, I mean, of course. I mean, let's just take the story for a second. I mean, essentially, the story here is that there's a company in South China doing open source data gathering, um, and is packaging that and is offering it to uh, various buyers. And there are many companies in the West who do that kind of thing. We all know that, <clears throat> you know, when we put information on Facebook or, or so on, it might um might not be as private as we um, we hope it to be. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, somewhat um, disturbed by the way that these companies are gathering data, but it's not a problem that's specific to China in in any way. And that's, that's often the way in which these things are um, framed, that we, we take something that involves Chinese actors and present it as uh, particularly nefarious as, um, you know, deeply criminal or deeply um, problematic in ways that our own actions are, are, are not. So, but setting that aside, obviously you have this interesting quote then about the uh, the Eastern and the Western mind, this sort of racist pseudoscience, which, I mean, it could have just been that the journalists were being pranked 
um, to an extent. But I, I, it, it would not surprise me if those kinds of attitudes were informing the thinking that is um, going on behind the scenes in the, in the security agencies. I mean, of course, people who are very publicly critical these days of China's actions towards Australia and so on, they will always insist that this is nothing to do with the Chinese people. This is about the Chinese Communist Party. It's the political system. It's not, we don't have a problem with the, the Chinese people. This is not a clash of civilizations or so on. But then, you know, every now and then these things sort of slip through. Um, it's like the, um, the American State Department official uh, last year gave a speech, talked about the fact that, you know, China was a challenge because this is the first time that there is a, you know, there's a different civilization on the other side. It's not like the Soviet Union. This is a, this is a different civilization. And, you know, here we have this kind of um, talk coming potentially from the Australian security agencies. I mean, the other thing that I thought was quite problematic about that article was the, um, the uh, the Chinese takeaway in the headline. I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed that. You know, it's mm. sort of it's sort of interesting the way we have this you know this paranoia of China as this very high tech authoritarian system that is is controlling everything now, and yet we're still willing to play on these traditional stereotypes of you know the Chinese restaurant and so on at the same time. These things, these things are both both in play still. Yeah, it, it's really disturbing. And another thing that was kind of concerning was that um, that quote that we were, that I read out was uh. from a supposed Five Eyes intelligence officer who was uh. using a pseudonym. Uh. So, I mean, there's another issue, which is it's anonymous um, and yeah. may or may not be from an intelligence officer. Um, but yeah, as you say, if it was, then that is uh. very disturbing and uh. feels a little uh. bit more like social Darwinist uh. thinking than uh. 21st century yeah, totally, ones. totally, yeah. And look, the way that we've been led around by the security agencies is uh, this is typical. I mean, really, what got the ball rolling in 2017 was ASIO coming out and saying that we are facing unprecedented levels of foreign interference, and this is what they've been saying ever since yeah. then, without ever really being able to substantiate that. So much of this has been driven by um, leaks to favoured journalists. Um, you know, I, the security agencies are clearly capable of, you know, publicizing things, you know, very widely when it's when they feel it's in their interest and yet keeping other things very secret at the same time too. And <clears throat> essentially the message that we're being told, you know, with all that is, you know, simply you've just got to trust us. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, this is the sort of the way that people are, you know, um, this is the way people are talked to in China. You know, you, you just, you know, you've got to trust the security agencies to have your best interests at heart. I don't think we can grapple with such an important issue as, you know, relationship with China. Simply, um, simply putting our putting blind faith in the, um, uh, you know, in the, the the staff of ASIO or the other agencies. Yeah, it is hard to trust when you are just getting this one-sided, very vague. Um, kind of threatening message of, you know, this this big brother in the sky almost. Um, you just recently, as of yesterday, uh, posted an article up on the China story, um, which is really interesting and it does draw on a number of these kind of spot fires, these examples of where things have started to seem um, more out of control or at least more frequent. And one of them is around, I guess, 
journalists and academics or scholars. And one of them, I mean, you, as you, as I just uh, mentioned in your introduction, they're um, study Uyghurs. And of course, that has been in Western news for a very long time in terms of how um, China is treating that population. But um, you also give examples or you mention in in this kind of conversation around your your academic work that you've seen colleagues who are critical of China um, lose their visas to that country, which, of course, is not, you know, something that we would see as appropriate um, in our value system. But then, of course, there are other examples more recently here in Australia where we have seen um, journalists who have worked for Chinese state media um, having their homes raided, their uh, electronic devices taken by um, national intelligence agencies in Australia, and they have since returned to China. And that has been one of the Uh, in the last week, um, recent examples where we did see a spokesperson um, in China come out to kind of denounce these actions, um, which uh, us, the Australian population, were not aware of Mm. until this kind of made headlines. Um, And I'll just quote uh, one of them. I'll just, where is it there? Um, Yes, so one of the spokespersons, uh, Zhao Lijian, who said that... um, As far as I know, the Australian side has so far not given a reasonable explanation for the raid and has not returned all the items seized to the journalists and that China has, quote, lodged solemn complaints with Australia over this matter. Um, And so they then follow up by saying, we urge the Australian side to immediately stop the barbarous and irrational behaviour, stop using any excuses to harass and suppress the Chinese citizens in Australia, ensure their safety and legal rights and interests, and stop doing anything that would obstruct cultural exchanges between the two countries. Mm. Um, Which I thought was quite a revealing comment, whether or not Mm. it's what, you know, is really thought. Um, It's hard to tell. But you know, people have since linked that case that we've mm. just found out about with the case of the Australian journalists in China who have now left China um, as of the end of last week uh, because they had concerns for their safety. Can you kind of Indeed. illuminate the situation at all? Yeah, so, look, I don't think any government is ever going to say that they're doing something in retaliation for what another government has done or in order Unless to antagonise another government. I mean, both sides are always going to say that this is routine, uh, this is routine police uh, informant, uh, police action. But I mean, the fact that the information about the raids in Australia was released just after the journalists got back to us, the Australian journalists got back to Australia, makes you think that there is probably some, some connection here. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I find all of this very troubling. I mean, I do feel for the Australian journalists in China. I've, I, I, I've, I've not had the experience of being a foreign correspondent in China, which must be quite stressful. But I mean, I have had people take an interest in my work and take me out to lunch and ask me questions and that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I do sympathise with my um, journalist colleagues. But um, it's the direction of things in Australia that I'm, I'm really troubled about at the moment. There's, because, you know, there's, there's this cliche in talking about China that we, we thought China was going to become more like us, it was going to open up and it was um, going to become more liberal and how disappointing it is that that hasn't um, come about. 
I think what we're seeing is sort of something of the converse, that there's actually a convergence taking place between um, China and Australia. Every step we take in this um, process of getting tough on China just seems to sort of bring us one step closer towards actually becoming more like China. Mm. Um, I mean, raids on journalists are troubling at any time. Um, The fact that you could do this and set in motion a potentially significant diplomatic incident, a kind of a rupture in the relationship without us actually knowing what we'd done um, is another element of, um, you know, adds to the adds to the um, um, the concern around this. I, it's not clear whether the journalists themselves had their visas cancelled, but it is the case that we also know of these two Chinese academics who had their visas cancelled, and they're effectively banned from the country. They have no way to appeal that decision. Um, it's it's potentially going to be quite difficult for them to ever get back in. And and these are people who study Australian literature. Um, you know, these are not people doing um, nuclear physics or rocket science or mm. the sort of to work with military applications that people get worried about. I mean, these are people who have dedicated their lives to pr- actually promoting Australian studies in China. Um, you know, and they, there's, you know, the whole community of people in China who take an interest in Australia generally have warm feelings towards Australia. They might certainly be critical of recent Australian policies, but there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they're in shock at the moment at, at what has, um, what has happened. And I don't feel that we're ever going to ever likely to really get a, a decent explanation um, out of the security agencies for this. Um, so I, I feel that we really need to draw a line and say that this has gone far enough. And I, I would like to see these um, visas reinstated. I think um, <clears throat> I think otherwise it just sets a really troubling precedent. Um, you know the the. The basic background issue here is that the the national security legislation that we have now regarding foreign interference is extremely broad. Um, It's it's so broad that it could capture all sorts of things that we would think of, I think, as quite normal political exchange, discussion, debate between Australians and, and foreigners, you know? People from China try to persuade someone in Australia, say Australian politician of their particular point of view. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But these things can get construed now um, as, as um, you know, acts of foreign interference and treated as a, as a security threat. I just think it's, it's really over the top and we need to look at the, you know, as well as the incidents, we need to look at the, the way in which the China issue is being used to um, to continue to build up the security state and add more to our already huge corpus of, of national security laws. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> and it does make me think about a couple of things that keep being used by our politicians as, um, I guess, shorthand ways of discussing the relationship with China. Mm. One of them is this kind of resources-focused exports focused economic relationship and up until recently it hadn't really been threatened by all that much Um, but I did see in the Washington Post of all places um, that the Australian government uh, said that it would be blocking the sale of Kirin to a Chinese company Mm. um, a very major Chinese company uh, called Mongnu Dairy (coughs) Company yeah and uh, that was interesting in the sense because Josh Frydenberg 
blocked this even after the fact that it had actually been approved by the Australian Foreign Investment Review Board. So, you know, even after following a supposedly independent process, the Treasurer seems to want to veto that decision. Um, So there's just one example of, I guess, the economic relationship not you know, standing up. And the other one which I'd really like um, your comment on is the way that particularly the coalition government talks about Australian values as being Mm. somehow the antithesis to Chinese values and how they are very much polar opposites or or at least in conflict in some way Mm. Mm. and that we don't have any kind of real common ground in that cultural sense, Um, you know. and, And that, I think to me, seems to send a signal to any Chinese Australian that, whether it's intended or not, that, you know, maybe you don't really quite fit in here. Mm. And I find that a little bit, well, very concerning, actually. Um, And I wondered whether you could comment on this kind of shorthand language that the government has been using and and whether, you know, that has been causing domestic issues. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few things to discuss. I mean, the economic relationship, I think, is is uh, hasn't yet been severely impacted by the um, by the political winds, but there are signs that there is there is potential for that. I mean, we're starting to see that with China launching investigations into uh, the dumping cases regarding mm-hmm. barley wine and so on. Um, Chinese investment in Australia is way down. And it's continuing to um, continuing to drop. I mean, one of the things that the government did during COVID was to drop the um, requirement for f- foreign investment review board uh, to look at uh, an investment to to zero dollars. So essentially, any foreign investment. And the rhetoric around that was all um, all targeted towards China, as is as is usually the case. Yeah, I mean, so the Lion Brewery sale is something that um, uh, China is pretty pissed off about the fact that it's already in Japanese hands. Mm. We're comfortable with that, but we're not comfortable with it um, in, in Chinese hands. This is, um, yeah, this is, um, well, this is a sign of the times really, isn't it? I mean, we've also taken a leading role in other, on other economic fronts regarding, you know, the ban on Huawei's participation in Australia and so on, which is quite clearly part of a coordinated campaign among Five Eyes intelligence partners to, um, you know, to stifle Huawei's. Um, international role. The, you're right about the question of values. This is the um, this is the language that is um, this sort of forms the bedrock of of some of this discussion. Now, well, there's many ways to come of it, come at it. You know, what are Australian values? There's a there's a sort of a funny list of things in the Australian values statement that that immigrants are meant to sign. Now, um, you know, a lot of things that I would um, you know question are really sort of very foundational, observable features of Australian society, you know. So, um, um, you know, that compassion for those in need, for example, is one of these things. Um, gender equality, um, it's not clear that we've um, even attained that. Um, you know, when do these things become Australian values? Can you call Australia a democracy before 1967 when, um, you know, Indigenous Australians don't have the vote? And, I mean, a- any progress that we've made on these issues has been, you know, involved conflict between Australians. Australians have found themselves on either side of these things. So I don't I don't really like this talk of um, Australian values. Or, and the assumption, it seems to be that, you know, I would necessarily share some values with, say, members of the 
Liberal Party front bench that 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 I would not with someone in China. I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that I have a lot more in common in my values with a lot of ordinary Chinese people um, than I do with people who would, um, you know, lock up children in detention centers on, um, uh, you know, refugee detention or, Mm. you know, would participate in, um, you know, illegal invasions of foreign countries that would result in the deaths of millions and displacement of um, even more, you know. So that's kind of the way I look at the question of Values. I mean, China. China, of course, has its own official set of values, which actually look a lot like Australia's. You know, these sort of aspirational things about equality and um, um, democracy. Even they, they say, is you know, officially, this is one of um, China's values. So, I, I. But I just think that these are these become nationalist slogans, really. Um, yeah. Ways of talking about Australia and and the West as um, somehow inherently more virtuous than uh, virtuous than China. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the people that we're said to share values with. That's that's another indicator here. I mean, of course, you have you have the sort of the settler colonial states of America, Canada, so on, um, Israel, which um, you know officially identifies itself as the, the the state of one particular group of people. Is you know that is also something. They were said to share values with, um, you know, Modi's India. A lot of the rhetoric about Australia getting friendly with Modi <coughs> is couched in this language of shared values. Even Singapore, which is really hardly a democracy at all, um, is, um, you know, we're said to share values with. So, so I don't, I don't, I don't buy it really. Um, mm. And I think it is, um, you know, I think it is alienating for Chinese in Australia to hear that that kind of language. Um, it's not just the in-your-face racism that that we've seen spike around COVID, um, you know, racist slurs, racist attacks, and so on. It's also this this sense that they're under, you know, um, increased pressure that they have to face questions that other people in Australia don't have to face about their allegiances mm. or so on. That in order for them to participate in public life in Australia, to comment on something in Australian politics, they have to first demonstrate their anti-CCP bona fides. You know, they have to. They have to be out there publicly denouncing China or the Chinese Communist Party before we'll trust them to say something about, say, um, anti-Chinese racism in Australia uh, or or that kind of thing. And, you know, everything over the last three years has really sent the message to people in Chinese Australia that if you do try to get into politics, if you do put your face out there, you will. you will be facing this this kind of scrutiny. You do risk having people... um, uh, you know, investigate you and, um, you know, splash what they find up on the, uh, in the newspapers. And, um, it's, it's, it's intimidating. It is having the effect of discouraging people from participating in, um, you know, public life fully. And, and to me, that's a kind of racism. I mean, mm. these structures and, and discourses that, that prohibit or, you know, hinder a section of the community from feeling that they can fully participate in Australian life in the way that other people can. That's, 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 that's racism. Mm, Yeah. And I wanted to ask about the opposition, the Labor opposition, because Ah. I mean, Penny Wong has been pushed out there, I guess, as the, the foreign, the shadow foreign minister and the kind of spokesperson on the Asia Pacific. And she's given recent speeches and essays on um, the region. What are your thoughts on how Labor has been behaving on the China question and, and the China relationship? 
Oh, look, I think Labor's generally quite opportunistic around these issues. When Labor is out of government, they're just as inclined to attack the government from the right, from an anti-China position, to say that the government's not doing enough to stand up to China um, than anything else. So recently, you know, Anthony Albanese has been going on about the uh, the lease of the Darwin ports, how that needs to be um, needs to be reviewed. So I don't think that really there is much difference between Labor and the Liberal Party when it comes to the basic foundational position. I mean, we need to just sort of step back and think about the geopolitics that is driving this. I mean, I think it is the US-China rivalry that is really the motor of what's going on here. And the Australian elite and the foreign policy elite and and both parties are um, very troubled by the fact that um, you know, China's rise could lead to some diminution of American influence in Asia and um, that that could uh, weaken, um, you know, the uh, relationship between Australia and America because Australia would essentially become irrelevant to American interests if America withdrew from Asia. And I, th- I think that they're both um, committed to taking America's side and um, doing what Australia needs to do to try and um, uphold America's position. And and so Labor, Labor is just as hawkish, really, to my mind, as the um, as the Liberals on some of these issues. As I say, sometimes um, sometimes even more so. Labor, of course, is terrified of being seen as um, soft on China. Um, it's really noticeable that when you have these sort of scandals involving the major parties, I mean, the media does really go after Labor um, in a way that they don't go after the Liberals, and it is clearly being used as a uh, tool to intimidate um, intimidate the Labor Party to um, you know to stay in line and, and and as a result you know they often get out there um, ahead of the pack as uh, you know um, and uh, you know want to talk even tougher on mm-hmm. China than uh, than the Liberals unfortunately so yeah it's a real tr- it's a real problem and the uh, neither party is really coming clean with the Australian public as to the basic strategic questions here about that US-China rivalry, how they imagine that playing out, um, what they think uh, what they think they're doing, really, um, in participating in this American military buildup in East Asia and so on, where they think this is um, where they think this is leading. It's um, it's very difficult to get a straight answer out of our politicians on these questions right now. Mm, it's very difficult to get one on many questions right now. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we feel your pain. Um, <laughs> David, it's been great to chat with you. We're going to have to leave it there, but um, I really am very grateful for your insight today and chatting about this really important issue and um, shining a light on a, a far more nuanced and rational angle of this relationship. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate everything you've given us today. Great. Thanks, Amy. It's been a pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.